All right. Good morning, church. Man, we got people sitting all the way out in the hall. What's the deal? Sort of. All right. Man, it's great to be here with the church. I, I love you guys. Uh, Lisa and I have always had our hearts out here in Lawrence, and uh, we're very connected. Some of you we've known for a long, long time. Other ones I just met today. So, amen. It's just great to see the church loving God and doing well. And uh, so it's very encouraging. I appreciate the introduction Willie gave me and uh, about Lisa and I and all that. It sounded really, really good. But God, I just want you to know, God uses the weak, the messed up, the broken. And, uh, you know, those are the people that God glorifies because it gives him the glory. And so it doesn't really say anything about me. If good things happen, well then, Amen. <laughs> But uh, I give you greetings from Kansas City. It's great to come over here and bring a little love over this direction. I mean, people in Kansas City, they love you guys. And I'm really excited about the partnership and continued partnership between Kansas City, the time to do things together and enjoy each other. But we've had a lot of changes over in Kansas City. And it's hard to process some of that. And I think uh, one of the things that, and this is part of what I want to talk about today, is how that affects our faith and how it affects our walk with God. And uh, I know Lawrence has had some changes, too. Yeah. And uh, guess what? That's not going to stop. As long as you're alive, if things stop changing, you just have died. So <laughs> might as well get used to it. But, um, I mean, some people like change. Some people don't, change, don't do very good with change. I mean, I have a little graphic here. Can you put that graphic up here? You know, change is interesting because it affects kind of the way that you are as a person. This is a personality assessment. I don't know if you guys have seen this before. I like it because it's simple. I was introduced to this when I was in the ministry in Wichita. I was a campus um, ambassador. And so I, I decided to help out in that way because you got to meet all the new kids coming in in the summer, give them campus tours, and a great way to share your faith and get to know folks. But in the training of this, they were talking about the different ways, the ways that people are and how they respond to things. And the gold people, uh, people that are gold are more loyalty driven. They, they're the people that want to have the uh, bulletin. They want to know what's going on and what's coming up. It makes it a little bit easier so that they know what's happening. It gives security that way. Blue people are more emotionally driven, relationship driven. They tend to be people like, you know, hey, I just want to be together with everybody. As long as we're all together and I've got my friends, everything's good, you know. That's what really connects with them. The green people are more the engineers. They always want to know what's happening. They're like, what's going to happen? When's it going to happen? Why are we doing this? They're real linear thinkers. And if you can help answer those questions, it helps them be more, you know, on board and understanding the orange people are more people that are excitement driven. If you sit here too long and the service goes too long, you're like, man, when's this going to be over? Let's go do something, you know? <laughs> They're excitement. You know, they want to go do something, do something different, you know? And people respond differently at times to, to change. So we're going to have another change right now. So what I'd like you guys all to do is I want you to all stand up and you're going to move three chairs to your right. Oh if you're all the way over here, you've got to move all the way over there. If you're on this side of the aisle, you got to move to this side of the aisle. Move three chairs over. you got 60 seconds. You can't dawdle around.
Change it up. Change it up. So how do you like that change? You know, it's kind of interesting. Some of you who are gold people are like, you know, this was not in the schedule. I didn't plan on this. I picked that seat. That's where I always seat. My name is on that seat. I always sit there. This is uncomfortable because I'm doing something different. The blue people are kind of like, oh, what the heck? As long as my friends are going with me, let's go. You know? The green people are like, why are we changing seats? What's the point? Uh, what, are we trying to do something here? Is this an organizational change? What, you know, they want all those questions answered. The orange people are like, oh, that was fun, let's do it again. <laughs> and people respond so differently. But we need change sometimes because uh, it, it makes us, it tests our hearts sometimes. It brings out our character. But it also reveals our need for God. And many times it reveals other things like self-reliance or self-sufficiency. It reveals a lot of times what we put our faith in because when things become different, things change, we tend to run to something in particular. And sometimes that's a person. Sometimes that's ourselves. We depend on our own knowledge, our own strength. We kind of pull in the old mindset of the old phrase of you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you know. And then there's other people that run to God. And as disciples, that's who we need to be. We try to make sense of it sometimes. When change happens, we try to think, well, what, what, what does this mean? Is this good? Is this bad? Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it a blessing? Is it a curse? And we, we try to quantify things sometimes. When change happens, we're, we're synthesizing it. We're evaluating it, trying to make it make sense to us. I want to read a story to you. This is a true story. It's about an old man and a white horse that he owned. Once there was an old man who lived in a tiny village. Although he was poor, he was envied by all, for he owned a beautiful white horse. Even the king coveted his treasure. A horse like this had never been seen before. Such was its splendor, his majesty, its strength. People offered fabulous prices for the steed, but the old man always refused. This horse, it's not a horse to me, he would tell them. It's a person. How could I sell a person? He's a friend, not a possession. How could I sell a friend? The man was poor and the temptation was great, but he never sold the horse. One morning, though, he got up and that horse was not in its stable. All the, all the village came to see him. You old fool, they scoffed. We told you someone would steal your horse. We warned you that you would be robbed. You're so poor, how could you ever protect such a valuable animal? It would be better for you if you would have sold him. You could have gotten whatever price they wanted. No matter, uh, no amount would have been too high. Now the horse is gone, and you have been cursed with misfortune. The old man responded, don't speak too quickly. Say only that the horse is not in the stable. This is all that we know. The rest is judgment. 
I've been, if I've been cursed or not, how, how can you know? How can you judge? The people contested, don't make us out to be fools. We may not be philosophers, but great philosophy is not needed. The simple fact that your horse, the t- simple fact is, is that your horse is gone and it's cursed. The old man spoke again. He said, all I know is that the stable is empty and the horse is gone. The rest, I don't know. Whether it be a blessing or a curse, I can't say. All I can see is a fragment. Who can say what will come next? The people of the village laughed at him. They thought he, the man was crazy. They'd always thought he was crazy. He always thought he was a fool. If he wasn't, he would have sold the horse and lived off the money long ago. But instead, he was a poor woodcutter, and the old man was still out cutting firewood, dragging it out of the forest and selling it. He lived hand to mouth in the misery of poverty, and now he had proven that he truly was indeed a fool. After 15 days, though, the horse returned. It hadn't been stolen. It had run it off into the forest. Not only had it returned, it had brought a dozen horses with him. Once again, the villagers gathered around the woodcutter and spoke, You old man, you were right and we were wrong. We thought it was a curse. It was a blessing. Please forgive us. The man responded, Once again, you've gone too far. Say only that the horse is back. State only that a dozen horses returned with him. But don't judge. How do you know if it's a blessing or a curse? You see only a fragment. Unless you know the whole story, how can you judge? You read only one page of a book. How can you judge the whole book? You read only one word of a phrase. How can you understand the entire phrase? Life is so vast, yet you judge all of life with one page or one word. All you have is one fragment. Don't say this is a blessing. No one knows. I am content with what I know, and I am not perturbed with what I don't know. Maybe the old man's right, they said to one another. So they said little, but deep down they knew he was wrong. They knew it was a blessing. Twelve wild horses had returned. With, such, with a little bit of work, the animals could be broken and trained and sold for a whole lot of money. The old man had a son, an only son. The son began to break the horses, the wild horses. And after a few days, he fell from one of the horses and broke both of his legs. Once again, the villagers gathered around the old man and cast their judgments. You were right, they said. You proved yourself you were right. The dozen horses were not a blessing. They were a curse. Your only son has broken both of his legs. And now, in your old age, you have no one to help you. Now you are poorer than ever. The old man spoke again. You people are obsessed with judging. Don't go so far. Say only that my son broke his legs. Who knows if it's a blessing or a curse? No one knows. We only have a fragment. Life comes in fragments. So it so happened a few weeks later in the country, the country engaged in war against the neighboring country. All the young men of the village were required to join the army. The, old, the son of the old man was excluded because he was injured. Once again, the people gathered around the old man crying and screaming because their sons had been taken. There was little chance that they would re- return. The enemy was strong. The war would be a losing struggle. They would likely never see their sons again. You were right, old man, they wept. God knows you were right. This proves it. Your son's accident was a blessing. His legs may be broken, but at least he's with you. Our sons are gone forever and we'll never see them again. The old man spoke again. It's impossible to talk with you. (laughs) You draw conclusions. 
No one knows. Say only this, your sons had to go to war, mine did not. No one knows if it's a blessing or a curse. No one is wise enough to know. Only God knows. You know, our tendency is to try to evaluate things in life. We look at it and we, we say, okay, well, we classify, was this a good thing or is this a bad thing? You know, is this a blessing? Is this a curse? Sometimes we take it a little bit further. We say, sometimes God is with me. Or sometimes we feel like maybe God's not with me. Sometimes we take it even further and we say, God's against me. You know, we only see partial amounts. We don't understand the whole. How can we possibly judge? You know, personally, I've been through some changes here. It's been a challenging year for me. Uh, at the beginning of the year, I lost my job. Some of you have been through that. I felt, some, I felt a lot of different things, you know. I've never really been let go from a job before. I uh, felt some loss, but I also felt a little bit of relief and excitement and hope, matter of fact. <laughs> I decided to do several things. First of all, I decided to pray an hour at the lake. And I got busy networking, you know, applying, looking for work. And then uh, towards the end of January, I, somebody asked me to preach in the Kansas City Church. And uh, in February, and so I, I spent some time praying while I was at the lake, and I really feel like God put a lesson on my heart about being faithful when God calls you to wait. You know, waiting really tests your faith sometimes, because you don't really know what's happening. You haven't gotten a guess, you haven't got a no, but we respond. We have a hard time with that. I put together this lesson. It was a great lesson. It had illustrations. It was a, you know, I got a great response. The church loved it. I got a lot of really good feedback from it. I had no idea how much that lesson from God was really for me personally. I went through five interviews at, that month at a company for a position. Didn't get it. They chose an internal candidate. I interviewed three times at the same company for another position. Didn't get it. I interviewed for a couple of positions at a different company two or th multiple times. I got, didn't get either one of those positions. I had conversations. I had meetings. I filled out applications. I kept hearing no, no, no. I prayed for open doors and closed doors. And it seemed like all I was seeing was closed doors. So I started bargaining with God. I started thinking, if you'll give this to me, I will. I made a lot of promises. You ever been there? Yeah. At times I would get excited about a position and an opportunity feeling like, wow, this is God's will. I can see how it's all aligning. And then I would hear back, we have selected another candidate. Sometimes I felt discouraged. Sometimes I felt depressed. I felt embarrassed for being out of work. I've never been out of work that long. I felt ashamed. How could I be out of work in such a great economy? I watch the news and they talk about how low the unemployment numbers are. <laughs> Sometimes I went to pray out at the lake and I just didn't even know what to say. I would just sit there before God and listen and not say a thing. I wanted to tell God what to do to fix the problem, but I didn't quite have the wisdom to tell him what to do. <laughs> Sometimes I pulled back from God. When I didn't see the blessing that I wanted. And I wondered, and uh, then I didn't want to pray as much. Sometimes I felt angry with God because he wasn't obeying me. <laughs> Pretty messed up. You got to ask yourself in those times, like, who is the Lord and who's the servant in this? Scenario? 
And I started seeing that what I wanted was the blessing more than I wanted the blessor. Although, through it all, I began to realize that uh, what was really important is really being close to God. That being close to Him is more important than Him granting my requests. A relationship with God is about surrender and allowing Him to be my Lord and really allowing Him to lead my life. That I can put my faith in Him and surrender for the outcome. And I've had to learn once again to let Him to be God and let Him be Lord. I'm still looking for God's guidance on what He wants me to do. But through it all, I've realized that God's promise to me has been fulfilled. I appreciate what Anthony shared earlier. It was Anthony, is that correct? In Matthew chapter 6, let me read that whole section right there. If you'll turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 6. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon of all Sermons. But Jesus writes here in chapter 6, verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not your life more important than food, and your body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or weep or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See the lilies of the field. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all of his splendor was not dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry about saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And the church said, Amen, Amen. on that one. Through this year, though, as I look back, we've paid our bills. We put food on the table. We've not accumulated debt. God's given me work to do. He's met our needs. He's provided income. He's kept our cars from breaking down. He's helped our clothes to last. He's given us food to eat on the table. He even gave us insurance money to put a brand new roof on our house. And with a little bit left over. He had people call me needing me to do some work for them that met our needs just at the right time. There were other streams of income that have come our way that met our needs. And he's fulfilled all of his prom. He fulfilled his promise. Yeah. He's taken care of us. Yeah. I don't understand his timing. He's not given me many of the things that I asked for, but he's given me all of the things that I need. Yeah. One of the biggest lessons I've learned through this is to put into practice a scripture that I've often quoted as being one of my favorite scriptures, and it's in Proverbs 3, 5. Many of you can quote it. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. To acknowledge the Lord is, a, is another way of saying to practice the presence of the Lord or practice the presence of God. And that's the title of the message today is practice the presence of God. 
He's present with us always. He always has been, and he always will be. You know, it's interesting. Religion, I think, historically has always kind of created kind of an us and they type mentality. And uh, what I mean is this. A lot of times people say, the religious community says, okay, God is with us. He's not with them, you know. God is with us. But, you know, it's, it feels really good to say that, but it's really hard to answer when you have questions like, why do bad things happen to good people? Right. And then when you look around, you see all these evil people, and you're like, man, he's doing pretty good, <laughs> you know. I'm struggling with that. I know that guy's life, but he has no regard for God, but he's, he's sitting pretty. And it creates a tough question. But the thing that I've realized over the years and over time as a Christian is that God walks with the sinners. He is present with the sinners. I have two points today. He's present with the sinners and he's present with the saints. He's everywhere. And um, many of you story, uh, know the story of Jonah. If you want, turn back to the Old Testament. To the story of Jonah. Now it's a uh, small book in the Old Testament. How many of you know the story of Jonah? A lot of you do. The rest of you guys didn't go to Sunday school or what? Okay, so Jonah was the guy that God said, go preach to the city of Nineveh. And he decided that uh, he didn't want to do it. He said, I'm running the other way. And so he gets on a boat, takes off to Tarshish, which, you know, then, then long story short, the people throw him over the boat. He gets swallowed by a big fish or a whale. In my grade school class, my Sunday school class. And then he hangs out in the belly of a whale, which must have been a wonderful environment, for about two or three days. And then he pukes him out on the land, and then he decides, okay, I am going to go to preach to Nineveh. Changed his mind. Let us not have to go through something like that for God to change our mind. But ultimately, he goes to Nineveh. The interesting thing about Nineveh was, Nineveh was not a Jewish city. It was not God's people. The descendants of Abraham were God's people. Nineveh was not a Jewish city. Matter of fact, it was one of the oldest cities of antiquity. It, uh, it was originally stand, established by Nimrod back in Genesis chapter 10. He was the great-grandson of Noah, and he was not a, a, a godly man. And so it, it established, and it, it stayed there and thrived all the way to about 612 B.C. And it was a major, powerful city in the Assyrian Empire at the time. So, but God saw what was going on in the lives of those people, and he sent Jonah to him. And to summarize this, basically Jonah uh, came out of, of, the, of the whale. He went there, and, and he preached to the city of Nineveh. He didn't want to preach to the city of Nineveh. He went there reluctantly. He was frustrated about it. you got to read the whole book. It's about four chapters long. It's one good quiet time, right? He goes there. He's frustrated about it. He preaches. The, he didn't say, hey, God will save you if you change your life. He said, hey, in a month and a half, this place is going to be wiped clean. See you later. I'm gone. And, but they responded to it. The king responded to it. The people responded to it. They're like, whoa, we have not been following God. And they, they, they put on sackcloth and ashes. They humbled themselves. They changed. They even put ashes on the cat or, uh, you know, sackcloth on the cattle. And, uh, you know, I mean, they really went all out. And God said, listen, I see the way they've changed. I'm going to relent. But in chapter uh, 4, verse 1, But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why you were, I was so quick to run to Tarshish. I, flee that, I, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God that relents from sending calamity. 
Now, Lord, take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. Okay, so he's a little dramatic here, right? <laughs> but he was mad. He's like, God, I knew you were going to do this. You sent me into the city. It's a big city. It's a powerful city. And I go through all this hardship trying to you know, say this to all these people, and you were going to forgive them anyway. What's the point? And so he was so, you know, he's so frustrated and dramatic or whatever. But he goes on, and then he goes up on this hill and is like, okay. Let's see if God smites the city. So he waits and, you know, God doesn't blow up the city. He was kind of looking for fireworks, I think. Didn't happen. But then you get all the way down. He starts getting frustrated and angry again. And the very end of the chapter says, God said to Jonah, do you have the right to be angry about this vine that he gave him? A little blessing. He says, I do. I'm angry enough to die. In verse 10. Yeah, it's very dramatic. But the Lord said... Well, we have a few Jonas in the room doing <laughs> God can use you too. He's got great things in store for you. Just watch, stay away from the water. In verse 10, the Lord said, You've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and overnight it died. But Nineveh has more than 150,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? God was present and he saw the wickedness of the city. And he said, this has got to change. This is going to be wiped out. But then God was present and he saw the humility and the responsiveness of the city because he was appealing to them. He was guiding them. He was involved in their life. How many of you know who Sodom and Gomorrah was in the Old Testament? The city of Sodom and Gomorrah was completely wiped out by God. You can read it in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. It was a sinful city. And eventually they did not change. They only became more rebellious. God completely wiped it out. It's probably very close to where the site is of the Dead Sea right now that won't grow anything. And, um, but God, God addressed uh, Sodom in that way. But in Ezekiel, I was reading my quiet times a, a week or so ago. I was reading through Ezekiel. And I got to Ezekiel 16. And there's a scripture in Ezekiel 16 where God is confronting his people. He said, you guys are the nation of Israel. You guys are the descendants of Abraham. You guys are my people. And I'm calling you. But you guys have been rebellious. Matter of fact, you guys are far more rebellious than Sodom ever was. And he's appealing to them. And he takes them back to this. And in chapter 16 and verse 49, he says, now this was the sin. He says, you guys are just like sisters. You and Sodom, Israel and Sodom are like sisters. He says, this is what the sin of your sister, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They, did, they were haughty and detest, did detestable things before me. Those were the sins of Sodom that God wiped off the earth. Doesn't that sound a lot like our country today? Doesn't that sometimes sound like us? That's convicting. But the thing that, I, that occurred to me as I, as I looked at that is like, unconcerned about the weak and the needy. How did God know that? Was everybody in the city unconcerned about every weak and needy? I don't think so. I think God was there, walking with them, pleading them, guiding them, trying to get them to change. 
But they saw, he saw a man who had an opportunity to have compassion on somebody else. And he made a decision not to. He had somebody who was needy that he could have the ability to help out and chose not to. Then they committed other sins too. But God saw it. I mean, I like to think that, no, oh, God wasn't with them. They were the evil ones. God's with me. I'm the righteous one. God is with them too. See, it doesn't matter whether you're sitting here in this church. God is here with us. If you decide to leave and not go be a part of this church and you go somewhere else, God's still there. He never leaves. He guides. He leads. He fights for your soul. He's with you. God is with the sinners. God was there. He saw it all. He was patient, extremely patient, merciful over and over. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, he says, From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determines the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. God's moving in the lives of people before they ever decide to make him the Lord of their life. Before they ever decide to be my... I've studied the Bible with people, and they're like, you know... I just felt like God revealed this to me and, and that. And it's like, well, and you know what? I totally believe that. Because God works in their lives. He loves them. They are just as much his children as we are right here. Everyone out here is God's children. He loves them. He's walking. He's present. He's with them, pleading to get them to become Christians. You may be sitting here today and saying, wow, you know, I felt something. I, I, I really need to be changing in my life. I feel like God has revealed himself in some way. He has. I guarantee it. You need to get into his word and study it and learn what God's trying to say to you and help you. He wants, God has been incredibly patient with me. He's been incredibly merciful with me. How many times have I failed? How many times if I were God, would I have smited me? I would have been smitten. It's just the facts. God works in your life before you change, but before you say you're saved, but he does that so that you'll respond. But we're saved not because we've become so great. We're not saved because just because we got baptized. We're not saved just because we attend the, the Lawrence Church here. Or are part of our movement. We're saved because we've decided to put our faith and our trust in God. There are times when my faith and my trust is not in God. We're saved by our faith. We're not saved. We're not God's people because we are descendants of Abraham. I look around here and not very many of you, if any of you, are Jewish. You are not descendants of Abraham, most of you. But we're descendants. The mystery of Christ was that all people could come together because through the faith of Abraham. You look at the faith of Abraham. Abraham was like, God is God. You tell me to do it. I'm going to follow you no matter what. They had faith in God. They trusted in God. They relied on God. And as long as we have faith in God, we trust in God, we rely on God, we are his, his children too. Amen? Amen? Jesus was criticized a lot for hanging out with sinners. Zacchaeus, the Samaritan woman, he went to go see a centurion. He was criticized for that. But God is present even with the sinners. He wants all men to be saved and come into a knowledge of the truth, according, as, according to what it says in, in 1 Timothy. God's been appealing to you too. God's with the sinners, but God's also with the saints. Amen? Amen? It's good to know that he is. Turn with me to Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, 
The scripture that you guys all are very familiar with. At the very end of the chapter. Who wants to quote it? All right, fine, I will. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. He says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You hear what he's saying there? He says, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. All authority. He had the power to do anything. He was proved himself to be the Lord of this life. You know, it, during his life, he proved his lordship. He walked on the earth and he proved it through miracles. He had mastery over food. He produced, reproduced food. He had mastery over the elements. He had mastery over water. He calmed the waves and calmed the winds. That's the, you know, that's the, uh, nobody can control the weather. He walked on water. He made wine. He restored body parts right in front of people's, uh, right in front of people's face. He raised people from the dead. Even raised himself from the dead. In Colossians chapter one verse sixteen, it says, "All things were created by him, and for him." He was all powerful. But then you see what he said. He said, "I will be with you always, to the very end of the age." Question is, are you with him? A Christian that doesn't recognize the presence of God and that God is walking with them every day, there's just something wrong. You know, Lisa was telling me about a Bible study she went to, and this lady was talking about she went to Starbucks. She goes to Starbucks and says, hey, I want to get some coffee. And they say, well, we're out of coffee. Like, what? You're a coffee shop. How can you be out of coffee? Something wrong with that. She starts tweeting about it, and then other people are like, yeah, I went to the gas station. They were out of gas. It's like, well, how do you, how do you be a gas station and be out of gas? You know, Something wrong with that. But, uh, you know, as a Christian, if we don't if we're, we're being a Christian and we're not recognizing the, the presence of God in our life, there's something wrong with that. He's walking with us all the time. Sometimes we hide from men. Why do we hide from men? Why do we not confess when Jesus is right there with us when we did it? People's opinions change. Sometimes people love me. Sometimes people hate me. And sometimes that changes in the course of a few minutes or an hour. You know what I mean? <laughs> Maybe the course of a conversation. But Jesus loves me more than anyone else. He's the only one I really need to answer to. God puts decisions in our lives as we walk along that gives you the opportunity to be able to decide, okay, if nothing else was a factor, I'm going to honor God in this situation. Or I'm not going to honor God. We have that opportunity. I want to read a story to you real quick as we wrap up. About a man who was trying to cross the desert. The problem with the desert, it was a long ways across, and he only had enough ability to carry water for, that would only take him about half the way. And he was assured that if he got halfway through the desert, he would see a well that he could refill. So as he's wandering across the, the, the desert for a while, his throat became very dry, and that was about the time he saw a little shack in the distance. And he's made his way over to the shack, and he found a water pump with a small jug of water and a note. And the note read, Pour all the water into the top of the pump and prime it. If you do this, you'll get all the water you need. So now the man had a choice to make. If he trusted the note, he'd pour the water in 
And uh, if it worked, he'd have all the water he needed. If it didn't work, he'd still be thirsty and he might die. Or he could choose to drink the, the water in the jug and get immediate satisfaction, but then there might not be enough to get all the way across the desert and he still might die. After thinking about it, the man decided to risk it. He poured the entire jug of water into the pump and began to work the handle. At first, nothing happened, and he got a little scared. But he kept pumping the pump, and he kept going, and the water started coming out. And he had so much water that he began to drink. He drank all that he wanted to drink. He took a shower, he took a bath, and he filled up all the containers he could find with all the water. There are times when we have to make that same decision. Do we trust the note and decide to, to pour out the water, or do we not trust the note? Listen, we got a note from God. Do we trust it, or do we not trust it? Problem is, sometimes we have a hard time trusting that. You know, we go walking across the desert, we got our little jug of water. And we don't want to let go of that jug of water. Man, I've got this jug. If I pour it all out, then what's going to happen? If I really trust God, then what's going to happen? So sometimes we just, I'll pour a little bit. Okay, I'm trusting God. I'll hold on to it. Or maybe a little bit more. Am I trusting God yet? Guys, we've got to trust God in the sense that when we get faced with decisions, we've got to decide, I'm going to pour it all out. I'm going to trust and just dump it all out. God is with you. He's with you. He'll always be with you. They will forgive me for making the floor wet. <laughs> hey, that's what you get when you're a guest speaker. You just go back home, right? Guys, we need to be aware of God's presence in our life. Make the decision to trust. Pour it all out. Jesus promised he would be with you always. He's the one that we need to, 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 to please. What's going on in your life? Is it a blessing? Is it a curse? I don't know. Only God knows. We don't need to worry about that. We just need to make sure that our heart, our thoughts, our words, our actions are pleasing to God who is always with you. He will take care of you. Let God be the center of all of life's events and practice the presence of God. Amen? Amen.